Today you've heard scriptures about it. You heard an old Puritan prayer regarding it. We sung songs about it, and that's God's grace. When it comes to the theme of God's grace, no other biblical writer, in fact, not even all the other biblical writers put together, have so much to say about God's grace as the Apostle Paul. It would be, it would be correct and fair to say he is the Apostle of grace from his very beginning. It's the song that we sang, without warning or desire, God came to him and offered him, overwhelmed him, really, with grace. The Hebrew equivalent for Paul's word for grace is only found 68 times in the entire Old Testament, which is nearly 12 times the size of Paul's epistles. And that would include Hebrews if Paul did, which I don't think he did, but even including Hebrews there. In the four Gospels, which are twice the size of Paul's epistles, the word grace in the Greek, charis, it only appears in the original about 13 times. By comparison, in the epistles of Paul, one-twelfth the size of the New Testament, one-half the size of the four Gospels, uses the word grace no less than 144 times. More often, all the rest of the Bible put together, twice as often as the Old Testament and the four Gospels together. When we see in Paul's life, grace is always used doctrinally. It's a description of what God has done for him, what God offers to us, what God offers all people. It's his gift of grace. We define that gift this way. Grace is the unsought, the undeserved, the free and unmerited saving action of God. We see it again and again and again. Romans 3.24, we find that we are justified freely by God's grace. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound. Romans 5.21, it abounds so that grace might reign in us. Chapter 6, verse 14 of Romans, we read that we are not under the law, but under grace. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound toward us so that we may abound to every good work. And in Ephesians 2, verse 7, he shows in the ages, of, ages to come the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. And these last several months together, as we've gone through these pastoral epistles, you've seen these themes again and again. The openings of each of these pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and in Christ Jesus our Lord. The same words in his second letter to Timothy. And in Titus, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray about grace today. Father, I pray that... Today, as we explore your word and your spirit speaks to us through it, and this living word speaks to us, Father, I pray that we would understand on the most basic level the greatness of your grace given to us in Christ Jesus. I pray that we'd wonder in it, marvel at it. I pray that we would celebrate it. Father, I pray even more than understanding it, that we would have a renewed sense of experiencing it. Father, that as we think about your work in us, past, your work in us in the present, the promised work you have for us in the future, all of grace, Father, that our faith would be deepened and our commitments would be renewed, and Father, that our enthusiasm would be restored, and Father, as we leave this place, we would leave empowered to live a life of grace, to do what you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you remind each of us who belong to you today 
that unmerited, undeserved, even undesired, in many cases quite unexpected grace that you've given to us. Thank you for grace that's greater than our sin. Thank you for being a greater Savior than we are sinners. Thank you for relentlessly pursuing us. Thank you for causing us to be able to see what we could not see or understand what we could not understand or to want what we could not want. Thank you, Father, for taking us who were dead in our trespasses and sins and making us alive in Christ. And Father, I thank you for that grace that still works in us today. The power of your Holy Spirit at work in us to shape us more and more to be like Christ Jesus. And Father, I thank you for the grace that keeps us, holds us, maintains us, preserves us all the way to the end so that we might experience you fully, completely, without hindrance, without limitation, without sin, without ignorance. Father, in your presence, knowing your grace forever and ever and enjoying you. Father, this is my prayer today for us, that we would know and live in your grace. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. When we talk about this overarching theme of grace, it just runs like a thread. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I'm hoping that through our study of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that you'll be encouraged not to abandon them now that you've heard them taught and you've read through the scriptures in your small groups and discussed them, but you'll be encouraged to go back to them again and again now with deeper and greater understanding for the encouragement that's in them. We call these the pastoral epistles because on the surface of them, it's the pastor heart of, of Paul being passed down to Timothy who pastors a group of people and to Titus. But that's reflective really of God's pastoral heart. Our shepherd, Jesus Christ, his love for us, how he desires for us to, to live, to know him, to function together, and to face and endure difficult times. It's God's pastoring of us. And so we need this over and over again. And, and I pray as you revisit this, you'll see these themes that just permeate these three letters. First is the sovereign grace that saves us. You know, we sing of this uh, frequently. It's, it's in so many of our songs and so many of our scriptures. But I just want to revisit it today for us to understand exactly the sort of grace that Paul was talking about. And knowing his own story, that he was not living a life of grace, but a life of just unapologetic, unabated pursuit of the law and pursuit of those who denied the law. In his own mind, in his, in his theology, it was law-keeping that would make him right before God. It was the struggle to be right and to bring judgment to those who were not right that would mark his spiritual life, that would mark his religiosity. But it was the encounter with God's grace when he wasn't looking for it, wasn't desiring, wasn't expecting it, that conquered him. And Paul writes to Titus in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's a constant reminder to us that fuels our worship, sustains our faith, is that God gets all the credit for our salvation. Never should that escape us. That should be part of our daily expression of praise to God, thankfulness to God, that God deserves the credit by His grace, not because of works done by us. That was quite the revelation of somebody like the Apostle Paul. But for us, we take this by faith now in the revelation of God in Scripture that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves and what we would not do for ourselves. It's His credit. There are two great delusions of our day, and they're not unlike delusions that existed in Paul's day. For far too many today, it's the idea that they don't need saving. 
I don't need saving. What do I need grace for? The value of grace, the worth of grace, is only commensurate with our understanding of our own sinfulness. A person who doesn't understand the law of God and the exacting expectations of it and doesn't understand how they don't measure up to it and how they'll be judged according to it, who understands their own sinfulness rightfully will understand the value, the worth of God's grace. It's the person who comes in humility before God. And he says, how can God save someone like me? If you only knew who I was, if you only knew what I'd done, if you only knew what happens in the recesses of my mind or in the privacy of my life or in my past, how could God save me? That person with that humble approach is at the cusp of understanding the great worth of God's grace, that God saves sinners. And the great two words that I want us to seize on is, are these three words, he saved us. He saved us. That's the essence of our soteriology. In the spring, I'll be teaching a short course in our open classes on soteriology. But I can summarize it for you today as a sneak preview. God saves sinners. He saved us. It's His credit. It's not only the delusion, though, that we don't need saving, that we don't need grace because we don't understand sin or the law or our position before God. It's the false idea that we can save ourselves. That salvation is really found somewhere within you. You need to discover your true self. You need to find your identity. You need to reach your potential. You need to, you need to understand and, and grasp your particular purposes in the world. It's all about you. And by looking inside, by discovering yourself, by fulfilling your own dreams and desires, you can provide some sort of salvation for yourself. The Bible dispels all of those things. The Bible says that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That's Titus 3.4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, um, God knows my heart. I mean, God knows that I'm sincere. You know, God knows I'm trying to do good. God knows, God knows that I, I'm trying to do the right thing here. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm a sinner, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying hard. And I think one day God's going to judge me by my, by my heart. Well, here's bad news and good, for you, uh, good news for you today. Our heart can only judge us and condemn us before God. Our motives and our attitudes and, and, and our thoughts will only condemn us. But here's the good news for you today. God doesn't save you according to your heart. God saves you according to His heart. It's the heart of God that provides salvation. When God, in His mercy, when goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, He saved us. It's the heart of God that we attribute our salvation to. Not because we're good, but because He's good. Not because we loved Him, but He loved us first. And in response, we can love Him. But you need to know also today, it's not just the love and mercy of God that saves us. It's the justice and holiness of God that saves us. Because the Bible says this, when goodness and loving kindness appeared, He saved us. Not because of our own mercy. How did He do it then? Well, the work of the Holy Spirit, washing, regeneration, renewal, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, being justified by grace. What did he pour out on Jesus so that through Jesus we could receive grace? He poured out on Jesus judgment and wrath, the judgment and wrath that belong to us. So it's the love and mercy, it's the heart of God moved, that moved him towards saving us. But it's the decisive, righteous, holy acts of God injustice that enabled him to save us for Jesus took our punishment 
Sin was not condoned. Sin was condemned. It was crucified on Christ. He did this out of love and mercy, justice and holiness. And what are the benefits of this unmerited salvation? What do we have? We became heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become part of God's family. We become heirs with Christ. What Christ inherits from the Father, we also inherit. And we didn't deserve that. We had no right to that. We had no claim to that. We had no resources that we could exchange for that. But that is a sovereign grace that saves us. Also, as we go through the pastoral epistles, we see the, the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Sometimes people say, well, where's Trinity in the Bible? If this is a hard concept for us to understand, it's implicit in so many texts. Because Paul writes of this threefold picture of salvation, how all the members of the Godhead are involved in it. We've already seen how the Father saves us. He wrote to Timothy in chapter 4 of his first letter, verse 10, We have our hope set on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. It's the universal offer of salvation to all people. Who receives that offer? Those who believe. Who is saved? Not everybody. We're not universalists. We don't believe in the end that sins are not judged and that righteousness doesn't prevail, that justice doesn't happen. But we do believe there's mercy and grace for those who believe. The power of God who saved us. He wrote 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And in Titus chapter 2, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. We know the Father is instrumental in our salvation, but it's also the Son. 1 Timothy 1.15, This saying is trustworthy, deserving a full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. When I say that Paul is the apostle of grace, it's certainly because of the revelation that God had given him in Christ Jesus, the inspiration that he had via the Holy Spirit, but also the personal experience he had in his encounter with Christ, the recipient of God's grace. There's one mediator, he wrote, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. It's the Father, it's the Son, but it's also the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's not simply God's decisive will and the Spirit's decisive action. It is also the Spirit's decisive gift of new life. How does the Spirit save us? As I read a moment ago, by regeneration makes us alive, takes those who are dead in Christ so that we might respond, the regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and He saves us. But as Paul would teach so clearly, the grace of God that we celebrate, the grace of God that permeates His writings is more than merely getting us saved. If we think of grace only in terms of its beginning, its origin, its starting point, if we think of grace as only about checking off that box so that one day when we stand before God, we can be right before Him, we get to go to heaven when we die, then we've missed the bigger picture of grace. It's more than the grace that gets us saved. It's the daily work of God's power active in us. There's, there's daily grace. It's what we would call ordinary means of grace. God works through these ordinary means of grace that sustain us, that sanctify us. God who saved us, is now holding us, keeping us, and shaping us, and developing us into the image of Christ. And he does all of that out of grace. Paul was totally dependent on this. But the means by which God does this are prescribed. The means by which God does this are appointed. They're, they're ordained. 
in the sense that these are given by God. Hence, ordinary. The ordained means by which God grows us. Look at what he says to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He said, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. When, when Paul was writing to Timothy to encourage him in his new pastorate in Ephesus, his writings were clear, and, and they're clarifying for us. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and following, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and is appearing in his kingdom, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. You know, Paul was not foreign to supernatural events and experiences. I mean, you can read Paul's life and see the, the supernatural means by which God used him and the times and places in his life where miraculous things happened, miraculous deliverance, miraculous healings, miraculous events surrounded Paul's life. But that wasn't the normal routine. That wasn't the normal expectation or experience of the Christian life. And he didn't say, you need to exist or grow in Christ. You need to be sustained and strengthened and shaped by one miraculous event after another, from mountain peak to mountain peak to mountain peak. What will sustain you, what will keep you and hold you, and what will shape you, sanctify you in Christ, are these daily experiences, be in the Word. And he begins to prescribe these things for us. What marked their regular practices? What marks the biblical pattern for healthy spiritual living? How we gather to worship. God's people in worship regularly. Sometimes those days can be fantastic. And we may feel like we have some, some unique encounter, some powerful experience. We may go out of here feeling like we're walking out on a cloud. In other days, it's simply routine. It's that routine, constant shaping of the word and prayer and fellowship with other believers. It's how we gather to worship, how we pray together, how we hear and respond to the word, how we guard ourselves from error. This is why Paul encouraged Timothy so frequently. Preach the word, guard the doctrine, Deal with the false teachers and the false teachings. While he doesn't deal with it explicitly, we know part of their worship as well as ours is how we share communion together and how that fuels us, how we fellowship with one another. And even things that might seem mundane, but keep the train on the tracks, as it were. How we're led, who we choose to lead us, what sort of people serve as elders and deacons, what sort of people teach us and lead us. And it's not just the ordinary means of grace. It's the ever-present, daily renewed, enabling grace of God. These ordinary graces, when we gather and when we worship and we hear His Word and when we pray and when we fellowship, but also that inner work of Christ in us that daily enables us to do two things. One, it strengthens us and it sends us. Listen to these two verses. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by it. Every day, be strengthened by it. You remember some of the metaphors that he used. Sometimes it's, uh, it's like running a race. It's a race of a lifetime. And how you run, and how you discipline yourself to run, and how you take control over yourself and your own thinking, and your own limitations, knowing that the greatest battle that you face is not external, it's not on the course, it's not the competition, it's you. So sometimes as a soldier, how you have to guard yourself against distractions, not being aware, not being, not being prepared, not being focused, 
because you're vulnerable in those times and places. Or like a farmer, just a reminder that this is the daily routine of consistency and discipline, that trusting over time your faithfulness to God will result in fruitfulness. God strengthens you for these things, for the race of life, for the battles that you face. The daily routine of just walking faithfully with Him, where does that strength come from? It's not internal. God didn't save you and then say, do the best that you can. He saves you and then enables you by His grace to do these things. So this grace strengthens us for those good works. As Titus said, in, or Paul said to Titus in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be ready for every good work. We're strengthened for good work. I think that's a theme that we probably have not nearly emphasized enough, just sort of in our collective life as believers, collective life as a church. I think sometimes even in our own tradition, um, when I say our own tradition, our evangelical, and then more specifically Baptist sort of tradition, I think unintentionally we minimize the place and power of good works in our lives. We know that good works don't save, and... That's not why we do them. We're not trying to accrue credit with God. And, and we know that good works on their own aren't enough to enable saving faith for someone else. They're not saving me and simply doing good for someone is not enough to save them. But that doesn't mean that God didn't create us to do them. You heard the scripture read from Ephesians chapter 2 today. And again and again we see in Paul's writings a challenge to do good works. It's the mark. It's the identifier of the Christian life. In fact, the best apologetic that you might have for your faith is not your ability to defend it against all comers and know what Mormons believe or Jehovah's Witnesses believe or Muslims believe or this branch of Christianity does or this branch of Christianity. It's probably not intellectual. It's probably not being able to deal with all the different cultures of the world and, and have an apologetic to deal with all those. The best defense we have of our faith, the best expression of it, is probably simply that we do good. That people could say of us, those Christians, I man, I think those guys are crazy, that stuff that they believe. But man, I tell you, you couldn't have a better neighbor than that. You couldn't have a better employee than that. You couldn't have a better boss than that. They do good. And where does that desire to do good come from? The grace of God at work in us. That daily, ever-present, enabling grace, strengthening us. But one thing that we can't miss in the pastoral epistles is though it's written from a missionary apostle slash pastor-teacher to a young pastor teacher, and it's written for all churches and church leadership. It's not written just for us. I mean, it's not primarily or, or not completely, it's not, not just a document about how the church works, our internal mechanisms, what we teach one another and how we lead one another, how we encourage one another. This can't be kept in. What God does by His Spirit in us the grace that's at work in us is also a sending work. It's sending us. It's, it's always sending us. It's, it's us declaring to the world what's most important to us, what matters most to us, what's priority to us. This is what the work of God's Spirit, His grace, does in us. And so, we see these themes again and again when it comes to the gospel work. When it comes to the truth, as, as Jude said, the one that we contend for is once and for all entrusted, the one and only faith. What do the pastoral epistles tell us about it? One, it tells us not to deviate from it. Don't deviate from this. He says in 1 Timothy 1, 3, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Tonight we're going to do a, 
different sort of a sermon series beginning. And we're going to be evaluating and, and understanding, looking at the history of, the meaning behind, the worth of some of our old creeds, ancient historical Christian creeds, and, and one that I think probably is the most significant, foundational, the Nicene Creed. And so we're calling it a Nicene Christmas because as we begin this Christmas season, this will be a different sort of uh, Advent series. But the Nicene Creed, what has the church believed throughout the centuries, and why does that matter? It matters because from the very first century, in the very time of the apostles, there were contemporaries of them, both within and without the church, that were already deviating from the truth that had been once and for all entrusted. This message that Paul had received that he was passing on. We're told not to deviate from it. He told Timothy in chapter 6, verse 20 of the first letter, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard this. Why? Because you have an enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. Guard this, because deviations from this are life-destroying. So don't deviate from it. Personally, he said, don't depart from it. Don't depart from it. I, like I'm assuming the majority of you, do affirm eternal security. I, I, I affirm the God who holds us and keeps us. But I also affirm this parallel doctrine in Scripture that we must hold on to Him, that we must persevere to the end. And those who persevere to the end are saved. I believe that true Christians will persevere. But one of the means to our persevering is being commanded to persevere. Not abandon the faith. Don't walk away from this. Don't leave this. And we see these warnings like this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Don't let that be you. We use the term today, as you've heard me mention several times in the series, of deconstruction. Deconstruction my opinion, typically begins with personal sin because we begin to do what we believe or we begin to believe what we do and sin is always the seedbed of deconstruction. But don't depart from it. Some will depart. Sometimes it's false teaching. We're going to see tonight an example of some false teaching that had permeated the early church. And not only had it permeated, it had become popularized in the early church. And it had become popularized, interestingly enough, through songs. Don't minimize the power of songs to teach you things. You ever find, find yourself just, uh, you know, driving in the car or walking along and you're singing or humming a song? Kind of mindlessly even. And have you ever done that and then realized what you're singing is really awful? You really, have you ever thought about that? What I'm singing, this is really not a good song. These are not good words. We might do that with secular songs. I wonder how often we do that with popular Christian songs. To listen to, what is this really saying? I mean, at the least, sometimes I'll be listening to music, and, and again, at the least, I'll say, I don't even know what that means. I, I'm, I'm not the most advanced theologian, but I have been in church a while, and, and I've read some things, and I'm listening to, this, to the lyrics, this, and I don't even know what you're saying. If someone who wasn't a believer asked me, so hey, that was a cool song, you know, I like that, man, that, that sounded good. What was he talking about? I have no idea. I don't even know what that means. But sometimes I listen to it and say, that's not true of God. Do we do this? Well, we had someone in the third century named Arius that had popularized heresy through music. And it had passed through the communities and their taverns and their churches. And people believed it because they sang it. That's, a, that's an aside. That's a commercial for tonight. Don't depart from it. But instead, 2 Timothy 3.14, continue in it. Continue in it. Don't, don't get bored 
of hearing the gospel repeated or sung about. Don't ever become so familiar with these great claims of the faith that they don't stir your heart, that they don't move you. Continue in it. Continue what you have learned and firmly believed. Don't just begin. Finish. The reward is at the finish, not at the beginning. Continue in it. We're also told by Paul not to be ashamed of it. Not to be ashamed of it. He told Timothy directly, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And what could he possibly mean by that? Do you realize how ridiculous these claims of God's grace through Christ that overcome our sin are going to be towards those Greek philosophers? They're, just, they're not going to get this. This is going to be foolishness to them. Don't be ashamed of it. And you know when you're talking to those Jews around you and you're speaking to those in the synagogue and that sort of thing, they're going to consider the story of Christ to be a real stumbling block because they're looking for a conquering, ruling, reigning, enemy-destroying Messiah, not a sacrificial servant, not a lamb who was slain. Tell the story of the gospel anyway. Trust in the power of Scripture anyway. Don't ever allow yourself to be ashamed about the claims of Christ or those who follow Christ. He references, and I mentioned him last week, in the many people that, that Paul knew and was connected to, which is, which is another great tribute to the Apostle Paul, isn't it? I mean, if you had to write the great letter of your life and you wanted some people that you really cared about to hear it or see it or read it, how many names would you list at the bottom? How many people's lives have you poured yourself into so much you say, hear this, do this, but Paul had them, these names, these relationships, and one of these was Anisiphorus. He often refreshed me, and I, I love this statement about him, just kind of thrown in there. He was not ashamed of my chains. You know, when Paul was in prison suffering for being an apostle of Christ, we get the very clear, not just impression, really, he expresses it at the end of 2 Timothy that everybody abandons him. They don't want anything to do with that. They don't want to be connected to that. I mean, I, I, can, I can be a Christ follower up to a point here. I mean, you've you got to understand. I mean, I'm just, I'm just not in it to that degree. I, I'm, I'm not willing to fight that battle. I mean, in comfort, I'll do it. House church, we're good. You know, those meals that we do together, love those. Those songs that we sing, that does good for my heart. But this idea that I could get arrested for this stuff, No. And they scatter, they abandon him, but not Anisiphorus. Don't be ashamed of it. That's why he said, you might have to, if need be, suffer for it. I mean, he told Timothy directly, share in suffering for the gospel. But catch this part of the phrase. Share in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. Who will enable you in that moment when you suffer? Because you might be thinking, and maybe even rightly so, I don't have it in me. I, I, just, I just don't have it in me. I don't know what I would do in that circumstance. I don't have it in me. You do. You have the grace of God at work in you by virtue of His Spirit's presence in your life. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul would never tell you, this was not his testimony. I'm doing this because I'm tougher than you are. I'm doing this because I'm mentally stronger than you are. I'm doing this because I'm more theologically astute than you are. Now, what he would say is, I'm doing this because God is at work in me. This is God in me. Suffer. 
and make sure that you're proclaiming it. I think sometimes, and this is just my opinion, okay? It's not Apostle Paul. This is just regular guy you know, Paul. I, I think sometimes we get a little too hung up in methodology or, let me put it this way, our perceived lack of ability or training. You know, I, I, don't, know the, I don't know the best means. You know, I, I need a system on how to share my faith. I need a training method. I need to go through a course. Um, I, I don't know what I would say. I think we get a little bit hung up on those and maybe, and I hope, quite unintentionally, we're hindered by that, not intentionally. When I think the picture that we see in Scripture is most clearly just proclaiming. It's just talking about it. Um, this is a poor analogy, but I think may, maybe this will resonate. Do you ever have a really you know, enthusiastic conversation, debate with someone about sports? I mean, it just, anybody had that this week? You're talking to somebody, and you, you know, you're both passionate about it, but you disagree. And you leave that thinking, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He, know, he, doesn't, he doesn't know anything about the way a, a modern college defense is supposed to be. He, he doesn't even know what plays are calling out there. And he's got all this commentary, all this opinion. Isn't it amazing that things we're passionate about, our inability to understand the nuances or understand all the data or concepts or even the history of it doesn't stop us from passionately talking about it? Now, I'm not suggesting you go out talking about Christ, not know anything about what you're talking about or not understand the formation of the gospel, what it means to be saved. I'm just saying passionate things come out of us easily. And I think this is the essence that we see proclaiming it. He told Timothy simply, be sober-minded. It doesn't mean that every minute of your life is without any joy or humor or levity. It's just there's a seriousness to understanding opportunities here. I was really, I was really convicted, so I'm mean, I hope you were when... Amy was here last week on Sunday morning, Sunday night, just sharing her testimony. And part of that testimony is simply looking for gospel opportunities. That's not, that's not a missionary imperative for someone overseas in a different culture. I mean, we have grocery store lines here. You know, we have neighbors here who don't understand the gospel. We have opportunities here. There's just this challenge to be sober-minded, to be thinking in terms of opportunity. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. That's fulfilling your ministry. And I don't think the work of evangelists is just for the professional evangelist or even necessarily for the gifted evangelist. You know, I didn't play college football, but I sure love to talk about it. I never drove a race car, but, you know, doesn't mean I couldn't cheer and watch a race. You know, this is who we are. So we talk about those things, making sure all along that we're validating this with our life. In that pastoral epistle, it's the guidance to validate this with your life. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. And he gives a specific example. You want to be without reproach in that culture? You want to be able to live in such a way so people won't question what it is that you're saying, won't doubt the, the value and worth of what you believe? Here's an example. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You want to kill your testimony real quick in first century Ephesus? Don't take care of your family. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, For you, old man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The world lives this way. You as a man of God, you live this way. You 
You validate it with your life. 2 Timothy 2.19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.21 and 22, if anyone cleanses himself from that which is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Therefore, he said, flee youthful passions. You want to be useful to God? Flee youthful passions. And then this painful indictment in Titus, Titus 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Now that one stings. Imagine if that is ever an indictment against us. They, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works, by how they live. And I leave you with this passage from Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. It's not just about saving us, it's about shaping us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's what he did. To purify for himself a people. That's what he's doing for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And that blessed hope is where it all gets enjoyed forever. This is the work of God's grace in us. So when you get to the end, it's not just Paul's sign-off. It's not just a, a perfunctory sort of statement. It is Paul's life theme. He ends 1 Timothy 6, 21. Grace be with you. 2 Timothy, the same. And the only addition in Titus is grace be with you all which is probably the exact same translation as the others, just making sure that we understand that the you is not one person, it's, it's everybody. So what sort of grace do I pray is with us all? Grace that saves you. The grace that saves you. Jesus plus nothing. Not Jesus plus your best. Not Jesus plus your own growth and development. Jesus plus nothing. God's grace. The grace that will sustain and shape you to be like Christ. Pray that that be with you. The grace that will strengthen you for good works. And the grace that will send you out with the gospel. May God's grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, may this be more than words for us, but may it be life. Father, may it be, may it be spiritual food for the spiritually hungry. May it be clear direction for the one who lacks it. May it, may it be strength for the one who's weak. May it be renewal for the one who's, who's grown cold. Father, may it be clarity for the one whose path is unclear. Whatever it may be, Father, I pray that this sort of grace would be with us. If there's someone in this room who's never experienced the grace that's greater than their sin, the grace you give us in Christ that forgives them completely. The grace that makes them into someone new. The grace that shapes them and changes them. The grace that keeps them. Father, I pray that they would know that today. Father, I pray that each of us would just renew our commitment, even in a simple way, of these ordinary graces. Father, to be in your word, to be in prayer, to be in worship and fellowship with one another to celebrate those things that you've given us as constant pictures of your grace, baptism, communion.
Father, I pray that we would exercise that grace you've given us in good works. And Father, that we would endure in grace. If it means suffering or struggling, that Father, it would be your power at work in us. We're not alone. We don't endure any of these things alone. We don't do the good on our own, nor endure the bad on our own. But it's your grace that works in us. And Father, I pray for your grace to be so active in us, so clear to us, so overwhelming and, and marvelous to us, so amazing to us, that it would send us. It, it would send us down the hall. It would send us across the street. It would, it would send us to neighbor or friend. It would send us to write a letter. It would send us to make a phone call. It would send us on a mission trip or maybe even send us to the other side of the globe. Father, I pray for that mighty work of your grace in us that sends us. Lord, we trust in you and in your work today. In the power of Christ. In the Spirit of God, which rests on those who believe and will change the hearts and lives of those who don't but will. Father, we trust in your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen.